Uh, Father, thank you that in this room uh, are people who you have, you have chosen to adopt into your family. They're people you don't just love. They're people that you like. People that you don't just know, but that you see. People that you don't just tolerate, but that you draw near to. And I just pray this morning um, we would enjoy you and being close to you. We'd be more and more comfortable with the fact that you um, are really, really big, but also really, really comfortable with the fact that you are really, really good. And the cross uh, demonstrates that to us. We've got such evidential proof. The cross, the resurrection show us. Uh, you're a God who can take really broken things and turn them into something beautiful. And the fact that you've dealt with any of us shows us that you can take something really broken, like me or like so many of the men and women in this room, and turn them slowly but surely into someone beautiful. And so we worship you for that this morning. Um, I pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me. I'm very aware of my limitations as a human, as a pastor. And I just pray that you, um, you would do things in our hearts today that only you could do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as you guys, if you guys are new, we're going through a series called Gospel Depth. Uh, we're going through the, the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. And throughout that letter, there's a lot happening. The big idea is the gospel, uh, but the how and the why and the why not. There's a lot of different components to uh, the gospel. And so Paul's uh, laying out, and the gospel, by the way, is the good news, uh, the good news of Jesus. And it's this idea. Um, uh, so Paul kind of takes a step back and kind of goes macro. Uh, our mentor, Mike Chris Vinon, calls it going Google Earth. You like back out and go, okay, big picture, what's happening? Also, you can Google Earth like a block, so Chris, it's fine. But, but, but you zoom out, and then you see that throughout human history, and even prior to that, but, but that God, uh, God creates people, and, and that we were designed to know God and to love God, to receive God's love. And that as the human race, we walked away from that source of purpose and significance and love. And we said, I'm going to do this on my own. I got this. It's kind of what we see in the Genesis story. And then we see that humanity goes, I will find love and significance and purpose on my own. And because we were designed to find all of those things in God himself, we went on a mission to, to go take them. I'm going to take security. I'm going to take significance. I'm going to create identity at the expense of others. And that's really the history of the world, human brokenness and sinfulness. And that, that, that since we were alienated from God, Paul says, all of our problems start there and kind of flow out. That if we're broken as people, it leads to broken family units, which leads to broken extended families, which leads to broken neighborhoods and towns and cities and states and nations and a globe. And so now we have both personal and systemic problems, and they all root in the, the first thing, though, is the fact that there's brokenness in each of us. Every system is just a group of people. People are like, the government sucks. I'm like, the government's people. Corporate, or on the other side, maybe liberal people. Corporations are the worst. Corporations are people. <laughs> It's a, a corporate reality that, that, that we make up the brokenness in this world. And that if we are made right, this world will be made right. And then he says, man, God's wanted to, to make things right. So he sent, uh, he, Jesus came. Uh, God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And he lived uh, the perfect life. He demonstrated what a, what a life, an abundant life, lived wholly for the glory of the Father looks like. Uh, he dies the death that you and I deserve to die. He rises again in victory. Um, and that, that connects us back to the God that we've rejected, that he absorbed a cost to forgive us. Every relationship that's broken requires um, the, the offended party to forgive, to, to reconcile, to move forward in any real way. 
And, and he does that in Jesus. He offers us reconciliation. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation. I've had this uh, recently in my own life where I was even reaching out to a person to be reconciled. And they've just said, hey, I'm not really interested in that. And so even though I want that, there's still this reality that they have to accept that. And it's the same thing with God. I mean, he's doing it better than me, obviously. But he reaches out to humanity and says, I would love to be back in relationship with you. I'd love to restore you from the inside out. And just like that brokenness started in and moved out, redemption starts with people and moves out and touches this globe. And, and so he says, this is what's happened. And he says, and, 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 and then in Romans chapter 5 through 8, uh, he goes, man, we're all in need of this. And he goes, and Jesus has done this, and here's all that it brought. And we spent six, I think seven weeks in Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is this, I, I, I made a joke that uh, it's kind of uh, the goat of Bible passages. A lot of people say it's like the greatest chapter of all time, and it's just so rich. And you can just be reading it and just loving it. Um, all that, that, that we have received because of what God has done for us in Jesus, because we've been reconciled to God. We now have a new father and a new spirit and a new perspective, a new confidence, a new identity, a new hope. And we go on and on and on. And so Romans 8 is amazing. But then you get to Romans 9, and you go from arguably one of the, the greatest chapters of Scripture to arguably one of the hardest chapters of Scripture to teach. I was talking to Nicole Pham about this yesterday, and she's like, it's almost like you're reading, like there's like a really good song playing, and it's like, right, like the record scratches. And, and here's what I want to say. It is a hard text to, to, to teach. Uh, text of Scripture can be hard to preach for two reasons, all right? The first one is they're just hard to hear in the cultural context in which they're preached. It's not that they're hard to understand. They're, like, they're just they're, they're hard to hear, right? So if you were to go, uh, if, I was, if I had to teach in Saudi Arabia, and teach on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's tougher than it is in other places. Does that make sense? But in North Park, if I, if I teach about the fact that God has a standard, for example, for sexuality, that there is a sexual ethic historically uh, in the scriptures, that would get quite a response as well. Does that make sense? So, so it's hard to hear. It's not really hard uh, to understand. It's just hard to hear. However, um, there are other ones that are hard to understand, uh, like, you're like, I, I think this might be saying something really hard to hear, but I'm also not totally sure. Uh, and this text is a little bit of both. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. Uh, last week, we talked about the new confidence we can have. And one of my points was that we can be confident that God cannot lose his people. He will not lose us. And Paul throughout Romans has basically been teaching kind of a, again, this master class on the gospel. And, and again, one of his points in his lecture this last week, you know, is... is God cannot lose us. And, uh, and what he's doing is, is he's teaching content. But then what Paul has done throughout the letter, I mean, you see this in Romans 4, you see this in Romans 6, you see this in Romans 7. Uh, you even saw it in Romans 8 last week. And you see it in Romans 9 is he's, he's like, like master class style. He's like, I know the questions they would be asking as they watch this video. Uh, and so I'm going to answer them in advance. And so that's what he's doing. Uh, on Tuesday nights, I meet with a group of four guys in our church, uh, helping them understand and apply a system called uh, apply something called family systems to their life, relationships, and leadership. And in each week, uh, I'll teach or play a lecture, and then I respond to objections or questions they have about systems theory. Uh, now, I'm not quite the teacher Paul is because I rarely anticipate the questions they're going to ask me. Uh, the guys in that group can, can affirm this. Uh, they throw curveballs at me all the time. Now, Paul, again, he, he sees it in advance. So he's like, he, he knows, he just laid out in Romans chapter 8 remarkable promises about what the gospel brings, the new stuff the gospel brings. And again, um, last week I talked about this confidence 
that we can have because of what Christ has done for us. And, and again, one of the realities is that he can never lose us. And so I'm actually going to start in Romans chapter 8 and then move us into Romans chapter 9. So if you guys have Bibles, Romans chapter 8, we'll start in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor, th nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God. In other words, God cannot lose us. But again, Paul knows that you may think, man, that's too good to be true. And a question that would have come up with the original audience would be, if none of those things can separate us from the love of God, as his people in Christ, then I have some questions about why it seems like God couldn't keep his old covenant people, Israel. Like, what, what, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that makes sense. I almost get the, um, like, like, didn't he say he would never stop loving them, but a lot of them aren't following Jesus, and, and they seem to be kind of wilding out. And um, I almost get the picture of, like, a skeptical investor, and before them is like an entrepreneurial, you know, woman or man. And, and it's a man that this investor, a uh, man or a woman, that this, this investor has invested money to, into in the past, right? Like in the past, you know, the, this, this entrepreneur was like, hey, man, I've got a, a quinoa milk bar idea. It's going to crush. North Park, even North Park's not ready for it. And then the quinoa milk bar did not work out. Now they're back. They're like, dude, ostrich burger place, Right? But actually, let, let's just say they've got a really, really good idea. And, um, and let's just say this investor is discerning. He, he's, you know, they're not a jerk or whatever. They're like, hey, I'm open to investing. But, but we've got to talk about what happened with the quinoa milk bar. Like, why didn't that work out? And you're like, hey, dude, it was a quinoa milk bar, right? Um, right like, like, I love to talk about what lessons did you learn last time? Why didn't that work out? What's going on there? And I can almost imagine the people listening to Paul with that type of skepticism. Like, Paul, before I buy into this Jesus and the church thing, I need to ask, what happened with the Yahweh and the Israel thing, like the last project? And Paul's actually going to go, actually, this is a fulfillment of that project. This isn't a separate project. You're signing on to the same God. But there is some complexity. I'm glad you asked, you know, master class style. It's like, haven't you already done something like that before, God? And so Romans 9 is unpacking that objection to believing the gospel. It's Paul responding to, to that objection in advance. Again, this chapter is a proof. Think of this. Romans 9 is a proof that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's going to give us a history of Israel that supports Paul's claim that in the gospel we can be secure. Um, by the way, if you're not aware of that objection, that that's what Paul's trying to deal with, as you read Romans 8 into Romans 9, that record scratch is way more abrupt. Because it feels like he went from like this amazing truth of the assurances of the gospel into a random chapter, like philosophical conversation on predestination, okay, which isn't how letters work. So I don't think that's what he's doing. I think there's a reason why he's talking about what he's talking about. Um, so I do want to say again, this passage we're going to look at today is one of the most controversial ones in all of the Bible for that reason. Uh, whole denominations have been split over this topic, and likely even a part of that topic is this chapter, all right? So it's fun. I'm hoping to split the church today. But I'm just going to say, I don't think Paul's even trying to answer that question here, okay? The question of, uh, did God choose people for salvation randomly, or does he choose them because they will choose him? Um, I don't think that's the, the, the main point uh, Paul is, is getting at here. Um, I do think there's stuff you can inference from the text about how God works with humanity. 
Um, but I don't think that's the, the main idea. I think the main idea is, is he's answering the question, how can we trust the God of these promises in Romans 8 if, if it seems like the Old Testament thing didn't work out? Does that make sense? All right, so we're just going to start in, in verse 1. Um, by the way, I want to say really clearly, uh, I'm leaning on the work of two scholars who are actually connected to our family of churches relationally. Um, uh, one's a guy named Do- uh, Dr. Michael Eaton. He's taught at seminaries in Africa for decades until he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, the other is Dr. Gary Bashirs, who currently teaches at Western Seminary. Um, I usually confu- consult about five to ten commentaries before I put an outline together. Um, and the reason I want to credit these guys so much today is because I, I would not have landed where I did on this text without their work. Like, I want to be really clear. Uh, I have struggled with this text for, I don't know, as long as I've been a Christian, maybe 15 years, something like that. All right. So, um, so let's go. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. By the way, if it's your first Sunday, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, this is your first Sunday, but I still think there's some beautiful stuff here. All right. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience, conscience testifies me through the Holy Spirit, which again, hold on real fast, just real quick. Verse 39. Romans 8, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's a letter. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. So in the first few verses, uh, Paul makes it clear uh, this isn't like a random academic or philosophical question for him. He's not the annoying guy who likes to get in arguments at Bible study. This is super personal. He's like, man, I, I'm Jewish. I would love to see more Jewish people embrace Jesus as Messiah. It's the fulfillment of what Yahweh's been doing. But it seems like that's not happening at this time in history. And then he kind of just, again, he's walking through the history uh, of Israel. Again, God adopted Israel and only Israel to himself through the Exodus. And from that point on, again, Israel experienced miracles and manifestations of God and foreshadowings of the gospel that no other nation had in their history. Um, um, then Moses comes, Israel's entrusted with God's law, God's standard for humanity, the best reflection of his nature at that time. And, and then they, they, they were the ones commissioned to build the temple and the tabernacle where God himself dwelt. And there was all these pictures of how salvation and atonement and sacrifice worked. Um, every single one of the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah thousands to hundreds of years before um, were Jewish. And when Jesus finally came, he was born as a Jew and lived in Israel. Um, and so Paul's saying, man, of all people, the Jews should recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. There are people with a ton of spiritual privilege. And so, again, what happened here? And how is, how is, how, how, how is it not true that God failed with the people of Israel if we are seeing this thing? By the way, I want to also just say really clearly, um, when Paul wrote this letter, there wasn't the current political nation of Israel that's on the map today. That's not who he's talking about. There's some, obviously some ethnic crossover, but it's not like the government of Israel today, okay? Uh, it didn't exist in its current status. Uh, we're talking about an ethnic group. Um, there's obviously been 2,000 years of history in between. But if you hear that, don't he- Does that make sense? Okay, so that's not, you're, you're just going to be confused if that's what you're thinking. That would be a very modern way of reading in here. All right. All right, Romans chapter 9, I'll pick up in verse 6. So Paul's like, man, I, I wish they got it. 
I, I think it makes sense that they should. I can see how you're confused. And, and as a Jewish person, man, I would love that as someone who loved the Old Testament. Um, now it's going to get fun. Verse 6. Now, uh, now it is not as though the word of God has failed, like, like it, it didn't fail. Because not all who are descended from Israel right, are, are truly Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will, will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For through her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. So Paul is saying at the beginning of this, this passage um, that God's always worked through Israel, but not all of Israel was always God's, if that makes sense. That, that um, up to a point in ancient history, the only people following God were the Israelites. However, not all the Israelites followed him. It's almost like the umbrella is Israelites, and then underneath that umbrella, there's two sides. Um, so, so everyone who followed him was an Israelite, but not every Israelite was following Yahweh. Does that make sense? Uh, the best I can do. And, and he goes, and, and as time went on, you could see that clearly. Uh, Michael Eaton actually talks about, he just thinks about even church movements. He's like, you look at church movements, and there's like a first generation, and they get really excited about the gospel, and they get going, and they have kids, and those kids are, are, are maybe, they, they, they kind of need their own stories, but they're kind of as excited about the gospel, and then like um, the next generation, it's kind of gone. Uh, you kind of have to restart and reboot and go, man, we're all in this, we're in this family, we're connected to people who believe these things, uh, but we had to believe these things for ourselves. So just as some of the patriarchs had this vibrant connection to God, that doesn't mean that everyone who is related to them physically has that. Does that make sense? Um, and so throughout Romans, Paul is saying, again, if you have trust or faith in Jesus, he can never lose you. But the story of Israel uh, doesn't contradict that because not everyone who was ethnically Jewish had faith in Yahweh. Um, N.T. Wright says that being a child of God has to do with grace, not race. That's something you can take away from this passage. He should do spoken word. That was good, eh? All right, so, um, so, so there's that. That's one of the first things he says. Um, uh, the other thing is, he goes, you can even look at, like, some of the, like, the actual people we have in the Bible that have, you know, big stories. He looks at Jacob and Esau. Um, uh, Isaac himself had two sons. Uh, one was Jacob, one was Esau, so is Abraham's grandkids. Um, and on paper, they're both just rough dudes. Like, if, if you read their stories, uh, Jacob's like a master manipulator. If you read him, he's like toxic family member. You're seeing MFT, they're like, you need some boundaries with Jacob. You got to watch him. He will steal everything you have. On the other hand, there was Esau, uh, who traded uh, his stake in God's plan for a bowl of soup. Now, in the New Testament, uh, Esau, actually, it's the book of Hebrews, represents uh, Jews who inwardly trade obedience to God's promise for doing whatever they want to do, kind of indulging the lust, uh, the lust of their flesh. And so one's, uh, one's a liar and one is a God-hater. Um, now, again, on paper, it's like neither of these guys are great. Neither of these guys are dudes we, we'd get excited about. Um, and I think for a lot of us, we'd probably go, man, I, I'd love a third option, right? Like, uh, Isaac, dude, can you, you know, can you talk to Rebecca? Like, I think we need to do this one more time. But have someone else parent them because clearly you guys are not good at it. 
And so these two types of people, but here's the one thing, though. Sorry, I meant to say this. Um, eventually, Jacob would trust God and thus become a true child of God, not because he was a good dude, but because through faith, trust, synonymous in the Bible, he trusted God, he, he received the promises. So there's these two different types of people. Now, even though that's true, there's one brutal portion of this passage it's in the last verse, all right? Um, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated before they were even born. So it looks like favoritism on steroids. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated before they were even born. All right. Now, again, David Veronica uh, sent me a picture of little Reeves the last couple days, a video. David sent me a video of him where he's just looking at the camera, and he just says, hi. And I was like, oh, dude, I was, I was, I was tearing up. All right. It was like some meaningful hi. Like, man, how, how are you mad at a baby? Is God mad at a baby? Now, remember, some texts are hard to teach because of what they're saying. And some texts are hard because of what it seems like they're saying. And I believe this falls into the latter kind of text, okay? I think context here is really helpful. Uh, two pieces of context, actually. One is this. The phrase hated uh, was an expression used by Jews to, ex to, uh, to express preference. Jesus himself uses this expression in the Gospels when he says, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot follow me. Now, in the Old Testament, it's really clear you need to honor your mother and father. It's not just random parent hate. In other words, it's like in comparison to what it means to follow me, it's like you hate. It's, it's arguing from the greater the lesser. It's like you hate your parents, right? So, so again, um, he's saying you need to love and obey me more than your mother and father and a culture that made your parents' approval everything, the thing that defined you. You're standing with your earthly parents. Does that make sense? Um, and again, um, well, like one thing that's blown my mind is I've traveled. Like in South Africa, they use the phrase, they'll say something was average, and when they say average, what do you think when we say average in America? You almost, what? Mediocre, yeah, like literally the average, right? Like it's in the middle. It's a C, right? Uh, for them, it means terrible, okay? So, uh, so I'm like, man, wh why do you say average when you mean terrible? And, and, and for them, um, hate is like just a way to express preference, right? And I guess we kind of do that today, right? Like I hate, it's like you don't hate tacos, right? Well, no one hates tacos. It's a bad example, but, but uh <laughs> My son Calvin will say things like, I hate pizza. I'm like, you don't hate pizza. What you're saying is, is you want to eat macaroni and cheese, all right? So that's one important uh, reality. Uh, um, so, so there's definitely clear preference here. Uh, now, again, did he, did he prefer a baby over a baby? Um, another piece of context that's really helpful is understanding the Old Testament quotations that are used in this passage. Romans 9 to 11 is all about Israel and God's big redemption plan and where we fit into it as Gentiles. If you're Jewish, you know, that's that, that part's whatever. You need to do all of it. Uh, the way Paul lays it out. But, but he talks about the Jews and Gentiles, how they all fit together in redemptive history. And so there's, uh, if we're talking a lot about Jewish people and the Old Testament, there's going to be a lot of, of Old Testament quotations. Okay, so you need to know that. And if you ignore those, again, I think it impacts the way that you read the text. Um, so, so I want to look really quick. So if you look in the CSB, it puts in bold when there's an Old Testament passage, uh, and it's quoted in the New Testament. Okay, so in yours, uh, if you look, if you if you have CSB, which is Christ's Standard Bible, uh, if you, if you look at that, there's a footnote, and uh, if you look at the footnote, it's quoting Malachi chapter one, all right, verses two through three, Malachi one. And in Malachi one, it says uh, verses two through three. I'm going to read verses two through four. Uh, Malachi writes, "I have loved you," says the Lord. Yet you asked, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Through, uh, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people of, uh, and the, people of the Lord is cursed forever. All right. Now, um, what you need to know is that Malachi was written about 1,600 years after the book of Genesis, which is the account of Jacob and Esau's, like, earthly life. Okay? Um, and uh, at that point... Uh, 1,600 years is a long time, right? Like even the smallest family tree gets pretty big over 1,600 years. And Jacob and Esau had whole nations that came from them, right? Uh, and Jacob, he, his name was changed to Israel. Israel's, you know, um, you have the, the Hebrew people. Um, but Esau uh, had a, a nation himself that was, would have been very well known 1,600 years later. And it's the nation of uh, um, Edom. And, uh, and so I believe that Romans 9 is describing the nations that came from Jacob and Esau, not Jacob and Esau themselves, Okay. Uh, and by the way, uh, everyone agrees on this next part. Edom was a terrible nation. Dabbled in child sacrifice. I know we think like we have the worst, you know, depending on who you are, this is the best or the worst country ever. I know we, we look at modern countries and go, that's the worst. Man, the ancient world was so brutal, and they majored in things like child sacrifice. Um, uh, they, didn't even, they didn't even hide the oppression of the poor into laws. You didn't need uh, a critical theory because you didn't, you didn't need to look at it critically. You just see it. It's just wrong. It, it was wide out in the open, the oppression. Um, they worshipped false gods. They were a land loaded with some of the most scandalous injustice and idolatry the world has ever seen. And I believe that, that the scandal in this passage isn't so much uh, that God rejected the Edomites. Okay, I want you to hear that. We all would reject the Edomites. I pr- if you knew them, you would have rejected them. It's like to know me is to love me. It's like to know an Edomite is to hate an Edomite. You saw that culture. The scandal in the passage is that God still loves Israel. He should, reje- he should prefer none of us. He should reject all of us. And we've been reading the first half of Romans. That's the teaching of Romans. Because here's the deal. Israel had become a nation full of indus- injustice and idolatry itself, which is why it was sent into exile. God was judging it. It had become as bad as its wicked neighbors. They were far from following the law. They were far from being, worshiping the true God and uh, act, living lives of righteousness and injustice. Instead, they were living lives of idolatry and injustice, just like Edom. And we don't know if child sacrifice ever took off in Israel, but we do know that they were very close to a lot of the worst of the worst in the ancient world because of that. All right? And so Paul's saying, yeah, they're, they're, there's a reality here. Uh, that God continued to love Israel. But, and, but you need to catch that. He doesn't owe anyone love. He doesn't owe anyone mercy. He doesn't owe any nation anything. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 15 says this. It just keeps going. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So the question here is, is whether God did something wrong by showing mercy to Israel instead of Edom. But the definition of mercy, Paul explains, excludes any sense of obligation. This is really important as you look at these passages. Because we live in a, uh, a place that is kind of post-Christian or whatever. We live in a space where we've been influenced by the Christian idea of equal rights and everything is equal uh, we tend to think that, that everything is, should be equal and available all the time in every single way, including spiritually regardless of what you do or, or whatever. And, um, and again, Paul just wants you to know there's no obligation of God to give mercy or grace. 
the definition of mercy is receiving something that you do not deserve. Like you deserve judgment and you receive mercy. It's not a bunch of um, morally neutral people walking around and God's like, uh, favor, 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 right? It's a group of morally rough people walking around and then I'm saying, hey, favor, favor, favor. Um, so again, the definition of mercy is receiving something you do not deserve. If you deserved it, it would not be mercy, it would be justice. It's really important. You're actually getting what you deserve. And so if God doesn't owe anyone mercy, Paul's saying you can't say it's unfair for him to not show it to someone. Paul's reasoning goes like this. Uh, are you saying that God owes someone salvation? He's saying no. <laughs> if he owes no one salvation, then he's free to give it to everyone someone or no one. Again, he, he could go, I'm not going to give it to anybody. Which is sobering, but, but true. There's about 900 versions of this illustration I saw as I was doing this, but, but the idea is it's like, imagine a, a judge in court decides to give someone a reduced sentence, right? And he doesn't give someone else a reduced sentence. It's like, no, the justice is they all get that sentence. Let's go, you know what, I'm giving someone, um, I'm giving someone mercy is, is, isn't required. We'll keep going to verse 16. Verse 16 says, so then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Um, this means that it's, again, it's not that God looked down. He's like, man, that person really deserves it. That person's amazing. And actually, in the Old Testament, which is, you know, Israel's book, uh, it actually says, I didn't choose you because you were amazing. I choose you because you were small and ridiculous, and I could get a lot of glory by being your God. Because they're going to keep saying, how do these guys get anything done? It's like, well, God's our God. We're the most unimpressive, small, weak nation at that time. And God, you know, blesses them. And by the way, uh, Paul reaffirms this in the New Testament. It says he, he, he saves the weak, not the strong. He chooses the foolish things of this world, not the wise. So none of us deserve mercy more than anyone else. It's God's choice to bestow it. It's, it's undeserved grace. Um, and again, but it doesn't mean that God's choices are arbitrary, like he's just flipping a coin, or he puts a, you know, a blindfold on. He's just like you know, playing a kid's game. He has, he, again, he has reasons. We just don't know what those are, but it's certainly not because we're better. This is why it's absurd that disciples of Jesus are known in our culture as being self-righteous because the gospel says we aren't better than anybody. The gospel says, again, classic Tim Keller line, you're so bad Jesus had to die for you, and you're so loved he was glad to die for you. So that he shows mercy to a group of people is his prerogative to, to do, but it's not because we're awesome on paper. We'll keep going. Verse 17. This is fun, right? This is a lot of fun. But please catch, he is merciful to you if you're in Christ. We're never going to, like, you're never going to figure out this whole mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Like, I promise. We're doing it for a long time. But we can know that we're standing in his mercy in Christ. Verse 17. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raise you up for this, for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my, my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, Paul, again, is using the history of Israel 
to reveal how we can know that God can never lose those who are his. To reveal that we can know that nothing can separate us from God's love. And so now he fast forwards 400 years into the future, you know, post Jacob and Esau's living. Israel's in Egypt, they're enslaved. And God, through Moses, asks Pharaoh, who was at the time the most powerful man in the world, God asks through Moses to let the people go out to worship God for a few days, not even to free them. Let them go for a few days to worship him and then come back. And, um, and again, Pharaoh is a terrible man. The beginning of Moses' life, right? We have, he, he's, he's, killing, um, uh, he's killing the uh, Israelites' uh, babies. Um, he, is, um, he is homicidal. You could say he's genocidal. He's oppressive. He is unjust. He is everything you don't want a leader to be. And he should have been killed kind of on the spot. But God, blew my mind to think about this, God gives him an opportunity to partner with him. He's like, dude, do you want to do the right thing here? He just kill him and go, dead, we're going to do the right thing now. He could have. He gives him quite a few chances. He comes to him, um, and uh, not only does, does, does he make the ask in the first place through Moses, he even demonstrates uh, like some magical powers, uh, right? Like he, not magical, but supernatural powers, uh, before him and, uh, and um, to kind of like give credence to the testimony. Like, hey, man, like this is, this is solid. Uh, you can believe this, you know. Um, and, uh, and Moses rejects that. And then, and, then, and, then he's, and then they let him know, hey, man, there's going to be plagues. Like, you, you want to do this. He's like, I want to do this, right? And, um, and as, you, as you watch, um, you might be thinking, man, it, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So was that really a choice? Was that fair? And you might be wondering, man, who rejected who? Did Pharaoh reject God first? Did, did, did God reject Pharaoh? Um, scripture does say in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to resist his message. But you also need to know that there's, um, there's about 11 times it says something similar to that, and there's an order to them. Okay? Um, now, again, I don't want to read through all of Exodus to show you. That it would be a long quotation. Uh, it is quoted, but, but it is. You, you look at it. Um, but um, Exodus 7, get, get going. Um, but... Uh, so I'm going to quote instead uh, Tim Mackey's very helpful article, When Pharaoh's Heart Grew Harder, uh, Tim Mackey, The Bible Project. He says this, he says, In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, Pharaoh's heart became hard. Get your Bible nerd hat on, because there's a translation issue here that unfortunately complicates things. The Hebrew verb for become hard, pronounced kazak, is not passive, nor does it indicate who is initiating the action. It's called a stative verb, meaning, meaning it doesn't say whether it's Pharaoh or God. If you're reading in the NIV, it's ambiguous, which seems to be the point, you know, the original authors. However, some other modern translations have regrettably inserted their interpretation into the text and rendered this verb was hardened. In other words, they turn it into a passive verb. You walk away from chapter 7 thinking God was hardening Pharaoh's heart from the first, which isn't what the text says. As you read on, you'll notice a fascinating pattern emerge. In the first five plagues that God sends on Egypt, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart happens by his own will the majority of the time, or it's ambiguous. Just as we saw in the opening scene, um, and then in the last five plagues, the pattern changes. All right, so close quote for a second. So after the first five plagues, it says uh, the only person, it says, hardens their heart is Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's like doing his own thing, rejecting what God is saying at high cost. And it's only after, after Pharaoh hardens his own heart that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's like how the text is laid out, the order of it. 
In a sense, he gave him what he wanted. And the idea here is, that, again, is you can resist God's love. You can push God away. And eventually time does run out, right? Regardless of where you stand on procrastination, eventually time runs out one way or another, and you'll know the truth of, of where you stood. Uh, Mackey continues, um, uh, why does the author use this back-and-forth technique in describing Pharaoh's heart? It's all part of the brilliant diagnosis of the human condition in the story, which is about the mysterious nature of human evil. God called Pharaoh to humble himself and acknowledge that God is his authority and that he cannot redefine good and evil on Egyptian terms. Pharaoh's response is to balk at the God of Israel. After this, God gives Pharaoh five opportunities to repent and humble himself, and five times Pharaoh hardens his heart. The author wants us to see that even the most heinous and absurd forms of human evil are not a true threat to God's purposes. He can steer even this kind of evil towards his plan to bless all humanity through Abraham's family. Again, he treats Pharaoh differently than you or I would treat Pharaoh from the jump. While he's still treating Israel better than they deserve to be treated. You can actually see a ton of patience here. In verse 19, it says, You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? So Paul's saying, um, how could Pharaoh have been held accountable? You know, like, like how could he resist God's will? And the answer is, um, we all can resist God's will. You do it every day in some form or fashion. You can and I can. Now, he wins at the end. I want to be really clear. He's not like, oh, man, they're resisting my will. It's not going to happen. He, takes, he can take sin and evil and do something you never thought was possible and make something beautiful happen. But he allows you to do broken things clearly in the meantime. Does that make sense? Um, and again, we often don't walk in his will for us. We often, um, and, and by the way, for all of us, whenever you got saved, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you've experienced his salvation and his rescue and, and you've experienced being reconciled to him, there was patience prior to that happening, whether you know it or not. I struggle, you know, I think, you know, Clive at like seven became a Christian, so it's a little tricky. Um, but, but when you really grasped your need and you put your faith on God to meet your need in the person of Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his power to save, in his love, in his grace, um, there was patience prior to that. Again, if he wanted to, he could, justice would be rejecting all of us in an instant. But he doesn't do that. So we reject him and reject him and reject him, and eventually we end up with him, which we're his. Um, but what I want you to see is that God patiently waits for us. He patiently waits. That is good news. And I know from, uh, that's not in this text, I know from, from broader New Testament teaching that he's not just patient with your justification. He is patient with your sanctification. I feel like if I had to um, write down, um, like if I had to do a, a spiritual diagnosis, uh, I'd say about one in five of my pastoral meetings, uh, this would be the diagnosis I walked away with. And it's, uh, they don't understand sanctification takes longer than they think it should. And they're really hard on themselves. So many of you, when I sit with you, this is basically what, what we get into. It's like, hey, it's a slow process. What we know from the Old and New Testaments is that God is so patient. He wants us to turn to him for a saving knowledge of the truth. That's true, but he also is slowly but surely 
waiting and partnering with us as we become like Jesus. It's not in an instant. And so I just hope you, one, one thing, again, that's not the point of this text, but I want you to take away God's patient. That's good. <laughs> I'm a dude God needs to be patient with, and he is, and it's everything. If you have any self-awareness, that's true of you too. Keep going, verse 20. It says, on the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Well, what is formed, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and one for dishonor? Now, the CSB does make the text uh, bold when it quotes the Old Testament, but it doesn't make it bold when it alludes to the Old Testament. So it's not a word-for-word um, quotation. Um, but whether you know it or not, this is a very strong allusion to another time God referred to his people as clay and himself as a potter. And that's in Jeremiah 18. I think we have that on the, the text. Yeah, up here. Jeremiah 18. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he worked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Through verse 4. Now, real quick, uh, God often would tell the prophets, like, go do this crazy thing, and it'll uh, embody my relationship to Israel. Like, Hosea, go marry that, that prostitute, you know. Um, like, go do this thing, or go look at this thing, and I want to speak to you through it. Does that make sense? So that's what's happening. So he's like, go look at the potter, check it out. So he's like, man, I did that. I saw the potter. I'm like, God, what, what lesson do you want me to learn from this, this potter? We even see this with Jesus, right? Like, look at the birds. Like, they, they, they trust me. You can trust me. Um, so he's like, look at this potter. He's got his wheel. He's, he's working it. And, and he has this, this clay, and it's not doing what he wants. And then um, instead of taking the clay and throwing it away, he starts to rework it again. And then uh, God explains to Jeremiah the, 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 the picture of the reason why he wants him to, to take this picture in. Isaiah 18.5 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God's describing himself as a patient potter. Okay? Now, potters aren't always gentle with the clay. They do stuff with it. I mean, they get, like, hammers out, right? Like, they, they, they do a lot. Uh, they kind of ball it up. They, you know, if you've seen a kid with Play-Doh, right? Like, like potters aren't always uh, gentle, but potters are deliberate, and they are going to turn it. If they're a trained potter, they will turn it into something beautiful. But not all potters are patient. We see a God who is both patient and deliberate in this text. And, here, and, and I think the thing that's wild is the patience. He doesn't throw the clay away. And we see that throughout his history with Israel. He doesn't go, guys, guys it's been 2,000 years. Like, we, we just got to move on. Uh, you know, does that make sense, right? Like, I'm looking into Australia. Uh, we got to restart this thing. This isn't good. You know, or, or Utah, I guess. You know, the Mormon church, whatever. Like, 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 like we got to redo this thing. He doesn't do that, according to these texts. We give up on people. We give up on relationships. We give up on commitments. We give up on marriages. We are a giving up people apart from Jesus. We are not a, a long-suffering, gracious people. People bounce from marriage to marriage to marriage. They, they bounce from job to job to job. And, often, and by the way, there's reasons for that sometimes that are totally justified, but often culturally they're not. It's just kind of what's in the air. 
So I know there's distinction. As a culture, we don't really believe in grace. We don't believe that people can change. By the way, it's not just as a culture. No culture believes in grace. We were in our theological deconstruction class, and it, it blew my mind. I thought about it for a second. Uh, Marielle was telling a story um, uh, about uh, a missionary going, going into a nation, um, and basically they were just saying that there isn't a word for the concept of grace. And then I realized, I'm like, there, is, there shouldn't be a word for us either. <laughs> like God created the concept. We've, we've taken it. We're like, we should come up with a word for this concept we would never come up with on our own. We're like, you hurt me, I hurt you. You do something to me, I'm going to make you pay. God goes, you hurt me, I'm going to love you. And not because I'm weak and being abused, because I'm choosing to love you and draw you to myself. God doesn't give up on his people. He disciplines us, right? He's intentional. But if we end up alienated from him, it will be because we continue to reject his love. Like this is one of the, the, the things we see in scripture. It's a mystery, uh, but, but it's, it's there. Romans 9.22 keeps going. It says, and what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, some people who think this passage is all about predestination can even go so far as to say that in this passage, it's as if God created people just to pour out wrath on him, which I don't think is a good look for God. I, I really struggle. Uh, that's what's known as, as double predestination, and I don't think it's what the text teaches here. Quick question, uh, and one of the reasons we, we can say, hey, I don't think it's saying that, is, is who does it say in this text prepare those who are headed for destruction? Who prepares them? The text doesn't say, you guys. The text doesn't say. <laughs> like, man, who did? What does it say God is doing for sure? Patiently waiting. Patience, patience patience. He was so patient with Israel who kept falling and failing. It's, it's almost ridiculous. If he didn't have all of the power in the relationship, it would almost look abusive. Like, man, they keep cheating on you. They keep walking away from you. They keep hurting you. Keep abandoning you. And he doesn't give up on them. Verse 23. This is where it kind of comes full circle, which moves into the rest of Romans 9 to 11. It's a hinge point. It says, and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. What he did prepare beforehand for glory are these other people. The ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So while he's patiently waiting for Israel to get it, he's like, I've got a whole bunch of other people who are going to experience me through Israel, through the line of it, through Jesus. Verse 25 says, as it also says in Hosea, I will, not, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Sons and daughters. Because Israel rejected Jesus, a lot of us Gentiles were able to find him as Savior. That means that even Israel's rejection of Jesus ultimately served a larger purpose, the inclusion of the Gentiles, which I'm like super Gentile, right? I, I don't have, like I look 23 in me, I thought maybe I have some curly hair, like maybe a little bit of Hebrew blood. It's not there. For a lot of us, that's true. 
And so the question we started with, why did Israel reject Jesus? And was that a failure on God's parts that, they didn't, that they're not, not currently with him in the same way? Uh, it says, uh, no, and God was not wrong to let it happen or, or to hold us accountable who rejected him. And so, fam, this is an important passage for us. Again, it reveals the patient love of God. It reveals God's ability to turn any broken situation into a beautiful one. It reveals that if we trust him and put our faith in him, he will never let us down. It actually reveals an inclusive God who welcomes men and women from all nations to him. We, if you're in this room and you've experienced Jesus, you know what it's like to go from being unloved to beloved. From not my people to my people. That's a big jump. How grateful should we be for this truth that God wanted us all along? And again, he still loves Jewish people. There's a lot in Romans 9 to 11, but they aren't more important than you or I, that through faith we can all become children of Abraham. So Galatians and Romans says. And so um, I know there's a lot in this text. I'm just going to give you a couple of quick takeaways. Um, one, God can save anyone. Uh, two, um, God can use anyone. Those go together. You see this with Jesus uh, choosing the disciples. It always blows my mind. Like he just does not pick the guys that even on paper from a human perspective look good. Like, they're uh, for, at a class level, they're on the outside. It would have been, uh, they're part of, a, you know, an oppressed group, and they were, they were poor. They were likely young. They likely couldn't have made the cut to be rabbis in the first place. They probably uh, date cuss and chew and date girls who do. You know, these kind of guys. And then uh, he's, he, he, it's, it's, a, it's a blend of people. He's got a dude who's a revolutionary. He wants to take the government down. He's murderous. Uh, and he's a zealot, and then, and then he's got a guy who collects taxes for the oppressive government that's occupying their land and treating this minority terribly. Uh, I, like, he creates this whole new group, and, and what you can walk away is, 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 is he can use or save anyone. I was talking to John one time, and he was telling me about another preacher he knew uh, who taught uh, that text about Jesus choosing the disciples, and the guy did, like, a nine-part moralistic session on The reason he chose them was because they were awesome. They were fishermen. I mean, they, they were businessmen. They had their stuff together. <laughs> This is so far from what you see the New Testament say about them. It's like, we're ridiculous, and he loves us. That's the story. The Apostle Paul, again, he, he himself, in other places in the New Testament, he took part in the murder of innocent Christians that were murdered precisely because they had put their faith in Jesus. And he said, and God saved me just to show you that no matter what you've done, Jesus can save you. Because you're like, man, man, I've done some stuff, right? Like, maybe you've even killed someone. Did you kill them just because they worship Jesus as Jesus? Paul's like, I beat you. I'm an apostle now. Follow him. Follow him. I don't know what your story is, where you've been wounded or abused or rejected, who you've, or on the other side of the spectrum, who you've lied to, who you've stole from, who you've betrayed. Honestly, man, like it could, be, it could be lies, it could be adultery, it could be abortion, it could be there, there is nothing that Jesus cannot forgive in his cross and nothing he can't help you overcome through his resurrection. Like there really isn't. He, he only works with broken people. But what he does is he makes them something beautiful. Um, he can save and use anyone. Number three, he's more patient than we know. Is the thousands of years of letdown. <laughs> they have moments of revival, big promises, you know, big moments of like overpromise, underdeliver. We're going to obey the law now. We're tearing down the poles. No more idolatry, no more oppression, no more injustice. And then they're like back at it. Like, I mean, like, it's just, it's just crazy. 
And the last thing is, is that God is up to more than we know. God is up to more than we know. There are a lot of times we do not understand what's happening in our life, and I don't know that you'll ever know. Some people are like, you'll know in heaven. I don't know. I don't think you're going to care in heaven, either because you got a satisfactory answer or because Jesus is there. But, but you can know, you might not know what it is, you can know that he is working things out for your good, like Romans 8 said. By the way, like, we are not going to be able to resolve all of the mystery of um, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, by the way, just because I don't think this text is mostly about that doesn't mean I don't believe in election. I think there, there is a reality that God chooses people that is messy. I just don't think that's the point of this text as much as it has to do with he, he's been about Israel, but not exactly Israel. And he's, he's, Paul's defending what he's just said previously. So there is mystery here. I don't want to make it sound like it. And John Stott's commentary says, beware of anyone who makes election seem simple. <laughs> So I'm not trying to do that completely today. This does make sense to me, but I want to say even with this idea of, of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and one thing that was really helpful to me is, is this idea that, um, man, up until like quantum physics came out, there was a lot that seemed like contradictions in the way that we studied and looked at the world. And, and with a whole other subset of information, it changed things big time. I, I have to trust that God, who's God and we're people, like he, he just can, he can work this out in a way that you and I can't understand. And I also believe that means he can work out what's happening in our life as painful and confusing as it can be at times in ways that we can understand. I think the greatest example of this, by the way, is he takes um, a beautiful man. It's a weird way to describe Jesus, but he was. I'm not talking about his physical image, who he was as a person, full of love, full of truth, full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of justice, love perfected. With, with skin on. And he innocently chooses, but he innocently, he dies on a cross, naked, bruised, battered, treated like a criminal, though he never sinned, mocked, flesh ripped off, nails driven through wrists. He takes that and he goes, I've got, res- I got resurrection in my pocket, you guys. Like, it's going to be Okay. I, t- I promise you, the disciples on a Holy Saturday, the day in between, that awkward in between, they weren't like, man, okay, oh, guys, crucified, it's good. It's right on track. Like, it's over, it's over, it's over, it's hopeless. That God has infinitely more hope than you could imagine behind the painful moments in your life. I really do believe that. I, again, be wary of anyone who can explain them to you, who's not him. I'm cool with people saying, I can see what God was doing in my life in hindsight through, through pain and disease and death. You know, like, that's fine, but don't tell someone else what it is. But God is actively up to more than you know, and the cross is proof of that. And so right now I want to move into to worship. And I want to worship this God who has set his love upon us even though we didn't deserve it. This, this God who never gives up on us, who never leaves us or forsake us, Jesus says. And we know he's not going to leave us forsake us. Romans tells us in chapter 8, we looked at it last week, that if he died for us, how, how, why wouldn't he give us all things? Like if he died for he didn't die for us just to abandon us. We're secure in him if we keep trusting him. And so um, we're going to take communion. Um, Mark, you want to um, play for a little bit? Um, but I encourage you to just take a second, reflect on the fact that you don't, re- you don't deserve his mercy. And if you have received it, Man, come up on, come on up and take communion to remember that. Um, So, you guys stand with me. I'm gonna pray. I encourage you to uh, to, uh, grab communion, and then after communion, we're gonna we're gonna sing two songs, and we will.
we'll be on our way. It's a, a long message, um, but I'm going to try to do it quicker. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you are a patient Savior. You're not a weak Savior. You're not a, a Savior who can't assert yourself. You, you chose to lay down your life for us. You chose to counterintuitively take the blame that we might receive pardon. Your ways are not our ways, and that's no more evidence than in, in the cross. It's no more evident than in this concept of grace. And so, Lord, I think the big idea of this text is that you never give up on us, that you're patient and that you're a redeeming God. We do, many of us, we've pushed you away for years. Maybe even today we're realizing we want that to end. We're ready to come home. Ready to surrender to you, to submit to you. We don't want to be like Pharaoh. We don't want to keep going until we get to destruction. We want to, to turn to you now. And so sovereignly, would you draw us? Would you draw us to yourself? Those who haven't been following you and those who, who have been, would you, would you draw us to you afresh? And would you do that through this act of communion? Would we actually experience communion with you, communing with the triune God? who will never give up on us, who gave his all for us, and who's up to more than we could ask or imagine, whether we're aware of it or not. In Jesus' name, amen.